Is there any chance that this is your last game? Zero. <laughs> zero. Say it. I don't want to just say There's it. zero. Yeah. Okay. There's zero. I've said that for a long time. I feel like I'm I asked know. that a lot, and I feel like I repeat the same answer, but no one wants to believe me. I feel but like one of the coaches in the AFC East, like, trying to tell you, are you sure this is not your I I'm know. The end. I know. I just, you know, I've, I've set a goal for myself at 45, and like I said before, it's very hard to make it that far. I know how hard it was this year, you know, and the commitment it takes, and hopefully I've learned from some of the things that happened this year to be better next year, but... Every year is tough. If there was any doubt whether Super Bowl 53 would be Tom Brady's final game, he just put it to bed. Zero chance of him retiring after Sunday's game. It is Super Bowl week. And this is the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Online with our app, Tanner Hoops in studio with you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Officially Super Bowl week as the big game will be kicking off in Atlanta less than a week from now and Tom Brady gets us started by putting to bed any rumors that he will be retiring at season's end so Tom Brady is coming back much to the agony of the rest of the AFC sorry to the AFC especially out in the east Tom Brady is coming back I checked the current lines this morning and right now New England favored to win by a field goal yet they go with that underdog mantra that mentality. They had that going into Arrowhead Stadium a couple of weeks ago, and they have that again. But why? Does anyone think that the Rams are really going to beat Tom Brady and keep him from getting his sixth ring? I just don't see how the Rams match up in this game. I mean, they're going to have to control the line of scrimmage. That's about their only advantage on paper against New England, is it not? They have to rush off the edge, and they got to put pressure on Brady. And even when teams do, and they put a little bit of pressure on Tom Brady, they make him think, he just throws a little check down. He's got James White, one of the better pass-catching backs in the NFL. A little plug for the Wisconsin Badgers, James White. Yet despite all the advantages that New England has over the Rams, and that they did have against Kansas City, they still have been using that underdog mentality, that mantra that the world's against us. And in a way, it's true. Pretty much any NFL fan outside of the New England area is hoping that the Rams win the Super Bowl on Sunday. So, in a way, it is the world against them. But at the same point, while there might be a large faction of fans that aren't necessarily cheering for the Rams but against the Patriots, while you might have the majority of America doing so, does anyone really think that the Rams are going to beat New England on paper and how they match up. Again, it doesn't always go that way. It doesn't always work out to how it should on paper, especially at this stage, especially in the Super Bowl. But if the intangibles swing anybody's way, it's usually Tom Brady's. Yet the underdog mentality, that's what got them here. That's what has helped them go 11-5 and five despite losing five games on the road. They went sub-500 in the road in the regular season, and still made the Super Bowl. How many teams can say that? How many teams can say that we lost more than we won on the road this season, and we still made it to the Super Bowl? Only three. New England is just the third team ever to go below 500 on the road and still make the Super Bowl. Three out of the 106 teams to ever make the Super Bowl. And that's what New England did this year. Comparing it to a few different leagues, last year, Golden State, they were not the number one seed in the Western Conference. They were the number two seed entering the postseason. Houston was number one. Cleveland, they were number four. Regular season wasn't kind to either of those two teams, and yet they still went to the finals. They still met each other. We have the two number two seeds in their respective conferences, squaring off for the Super Bowl between New England and L.A. If anybody should be embracing the underdog mentality, shouldn't it be the Rams? They have a head coach who's half of the age of the guy that's going to be on the other sideline who's got five rings to his credit already as a head coach. You have got a quarterback at 24 years old, largely unproven, struggled in his first season with a coach who was fired, and then he looked really good under an offensive genius. Goes up against a 41-year-old 
in the greatest system of all time who's already got five Super Bowl rings. The Rams should be embracing the underdog mentality if anybody shouldn't they? Now some people say it's nauseating that New England is, but really how often do they get to have this kind of a rule where they get to truly feel that it's us against the world, not in the sense that people may not like them across the country, but in the sense that people really didn't expect them to be here or don't think they should be here. They certainly felt that way against Kansas City, and they still got a little bit of a chip on their shoulder because there are people who say that the NFL overtime rules and a coin flip decided Tom Brady should get to the Super Bowl. Now, I'm not saying that's the case, or that's what I believe. I do believe overtime rules should be fixed. That's a different topic. But they use that underdog mentality to their advantage. It gives them a little extra motivation. They're playing it up because they never get to be in this role. Tom Brady, excited as ever, he maintained that mantra that everyone doubted us. Nobody believed we could get back here. And yet, here we are. I've been so blessed, obviously, being here for as long as I have and uh, to play with so many great teammates and coaches to represent this team and organization and obviously to represent you guys is what it's all about. So I can't thank you enough. We're excited. I hope you guys are excited. And as Dev said, let's let them hear it all the way down in Atlanta. We're still here. 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 Yes, they are. Never bet against the Patriots in the postseason. Remember a couple of years ago, 28-3? to It looked all but certain that Atlanta was going to win the Super Bowl, and here they come. They erase the 25-point deficit. They win it in overtime. Tom Brady gets another ring. Even when the odds are completely stacked against them, they find ways to win at the biggest stage. And they are still here. They're still here for that reason. That's why I'm going with New England in the Super Bowl. Are you? You can vote in our Twitter poll. It's going to be up all week. We've got like a seven-day-long poll that is going to be going right up to the Super Bowl. Give us your thoughts. We'll keep track of that throughout the day. Who will win Super Bowl 53? Will it be the Patriots or will the Rams pull off the upset? I hope it's a good game. I don't have skin in the game, so I'm all right with whoever wins. I just hope we get to see some good football, because we did on Championship Sunday. Albeit a little marred by controversy, it was still great football. That's what I want on Super Bowl Sunday. I'm not sure we're going to get that. I think the Patriots are going to go well over the three-point margin of victory that they're expected to win by. I can easily see it being a two-score game. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see New England win by 10 to 14 points. But I hope it's a good game. I don't care who wins. I just hope it's a great one. Did you know that Belichick and Sean McVay are texting buddies? I read a piece on Twitter today. Apparently they are texting buddies. They text quite a bit. It's weird for me to think that a guy who's almost 70 years old, like Bill Belichick, and who's so focused on winning, who's so stoic in his press conferences, is a texter. Doesn't that just surprise you that Bill Belichick texts? Do you think he uses emojis? That could be one of our Twitter polls coming up, but we've got one to focus on this week. But does Bill Belichick use emojis when he texts? It didn't say what kind of phone he has, whether it's an iPhone, Android, what have you. Hey, but whatever is working for him, keep on doing it, Bill. Great coach, still winning titles. Before we go to break, let's transition to talk about another NFL coach. Someone that Belichick has history with. One of the most famous games in NFL history, they coached against each other en route to Belichick's first Super Bowl. I'm talking about John Gruden. John Gruden in the tuck rule game. John Gruden, the embattled head coach of the Oakland Raiders. New general manager Mike Mayock has said that the team is going to focus on drafting edge rushers and they're going to focus on their defense with the draft looming in April. Seemed kind of a weird thing to say after your team traded away Khalil Mack. And I'm not saying that has anything to do with Mike Mayock, because he wasn't a part of the team when that happened. He was still working for NFL Network. A lot of people criticize the Raiders for making that move, because Reggie McKenzie, he was a great general manager. 
former executive year in the NFL. But Mike Mayock is a great hire in his own right. And there's a lot of people who don't like that hire. He doesn't have the executive experience. This will be his first executive job. But he's been a draft expert for years. And given the situation that Oakland is in right now, it was a heck of a hire by Gruden. Because Mayock is a guy Gruden is going to listen to. Gruden, we all know, has full control of the team. Other than the Davis family, Gruden is the most powerful guy in that office. And whatever he wants, he's going to get. He knows he can, too, because he's got a 10-year contract. He was signed on a 10-year contract. He knows he can make some drastic, eye-popping changes and get away with it. There's nothing new about that. But Mike Mayock has come out and said that he wants to focus on the defense in the upcoming draft. The defensive draft class this year is going to be absolutely outstanding. I said from the beginning, I think Gruden is a great coach. He has done some eye-popping things, made some really questionable moves, but I still trust him. I still trust Grant. I'm not even a Raider fan, but he's smart. He's not a stupid guy. He is smart, and he knows football inside and out. He's getting the guys in place that he wants and building his system. And he, he knows he can do it because, again, he's got that 10-year contract. So stockpiling on draft picks when your team's about to move to a new city, that gives the fans a lot of hope, a lot of optimism. And maybe that's exactly what Gruden wanted all along from the time that he traded Amari Cooper and Khalil Mack. No one thought that the Raiders were going to contend for the Super Bowl this year. I don't think anybody had too high of hopes for them. So they get rid of a few players like Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper, some of the greatest players in football, and they get draft picks. Maybe Gruden was trying to get out of the way before the hammer fell. Maybe he wasn't sure how much coaching had changed since he was last on the sidelines, spent all those years in the Monday Night Football booth. What if his strategy was to tank? He has a chance to build for the future, while he relearns how to coach in the NFL. Gruden would rather have people think that he's crazy as a general manager type rather than a bad coach. So he's all right with making some eye-popping moves, even if that means he's going to go 3-13 and this season. I'm not saying Gruden's a bad coach. I still think he's got it. I think he has a lot to offer the Raiders. But the time is now. 3-13 and is behind you. This season's going to come to an end in less than a week, and you're officially ready to move on. But you've got to hit on these draft picks that you've acquired for players like Mack and Cooper, because draft picks don't win you games. Players do. That's why bringing in Mike Mayock, a guy who studies the draft, knows the trends so well, was a home run hire as a general manager for John Gruden. They need to hit on these draft picks. Because you can trade away the best players on your team for all the draft capital in the world, and it won't matter if you don't hit on those picks. So it's going to be make or break time in April to see if Gruden's experiment with the Raiders is going to pan out. Coming up, major coaching milestone happened over the weekend. Plus, what did the city of New Orleans ever do to Los Angeles? Next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for being with us on this chilly Monday afternoon. It might be a little bit warmer than it was the last couple of days, but there's a wind. The coldest I saw it get down to the other night was negative 17. And it's not nearly as cold a day. But it feels so much worse to go outside because of the wind. I know I sound like such a Midwesterner by saying that. It wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the wind. But there's a lot of truth to it. Still play to go over sports-wise before we hit the 5 o'clock hour. A major coaching milestone occurred over the weekend. And I don't feel like people are talking about it enough. If I were to ask you, would you be able to tell me Who is the fastest coach to reach 300 wins in any of the four major pro sports in America? Because we have a new record holder as of this weekend. Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors picked up win number 300 in his coaching career. 
He did it in his 377th game. That is the fastest of any coach in all of North American major pro sports. That includes the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, and the MLB. Steve Kerr's career coaching record is 377, and they play again tonight. They take on Indiana. But how much of that falls on Steve Kerr? Because I know what the majority of you listening are thinking right now. It's because he has a team full of all pros, because he's had Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green for his entire Golden State tenure, and now he has Kevin Durant and Boogie Cousins, and he's got a team that will contend for the NBA title every single year, of course he's going to be the fastest coach ever to get 300 wins. But let's take into consideration that talent doesn't always translate to success. Oftentimes when you've got a team full of all pros and superstars, like Steve Kerr has had over the past few years like he has right now, oftentimes that could be worse than having a team that has two or three all pros. Because when you get guys of that talent, that caliber of skill, all in the same locker room, you're going to have to balance a lot more than just who you're drawing up a last-second shot for. You've got to balance emotions, personalities, the playing time that goes with it. You leave the money that's allotted to your front office. And oftentimes, that can be the most challenging part of having such a stacked, talented team. Oklahoma City went through that a few years ago, back when they didn't have enough basketballs to go around when Carmelo Anthony was still there. Philadelphia going through a little bit of it in multiple sports right now. The Eagles were trying to balance Carson Wentz and Nick Foles, and then the 76ers. I mean, you can't tell me that you put Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, and those guys all in the same locker room, and there's not going to be a little bit of a shakeup. Some personalities, maybe. The LA Rams are a good example. You think about all the personalities on that team, especially on defense, between Ndamukong Sue, Marcus Peters, and Nikhil Roby Coleman. It's not just about being a good X's and O's coach, but you've got to know how to balance personalities and emotions because Steve Kerr has had to do plenty of that this season already, and he's done a good job with it. He's kept the Warriors afloat, and right now they're looking every bit like a team that can win their fourth title under his leadership. In a lot of ways, professional coaching is as much of a balancing act as it is X's and O's, and how you can relate to the player or control a locker room, and Steve Kerr has done wonderful in that regard. As an X's and O's guy, I think he's a really good coach. I still think that he is a fantastic coach, despite the talent that he has on his roster. You don't get to be a team of that caliber without good coaching. Doesn't matter if you have a talented roster. Look at the Minnesota Timberwolves. They hadn't a good enough roster that they should have been an outside contender this year. Maybe something like a fifth seed in the West. And their coach is already out the door. Tom Thibodeau was fired a couple of weeks ago. You look at the Warriors and what they're doing, and of course, they wouldn't be at the level of dominance that they are without the talent that they have on that roster. But you got to give Steve Kerr some of that credit. I believe he's a smart coach that any team would be blessed to have. Because I don't know that there are many coaches in the NBA right now who could have achieved the level of success that Steve Kerr has in his first few seasons with Golden State. Are there coaches that could have been plugged in Kerr's place and been even more successful? I think there are. I think there absolutely are. You put Greg Popovich on the sidelines instead of Steve Kerr with the Warrior teams that he's had, or Brad Stevens. The only question will be how much better could they be or could they have been? Maybe 20 wins better? 15 to 20 wins? Realistically, by how many games could the Warriors have been better had a guy like Pop or Brad Stevens been coaching instead of Steve Kerr? I don't know that it would have made a huge difference in win-loss value. Maybe the only major difference is that the Warriors would be competing for their fifth consecutive title this year. That Brad Stevens or Greg Popovich or whoever 
didn't lose the 2016 finals, didn't blow that 3-1 lead, the year where almost everybody was blowing 3-1 leads. What about prime Phil Jackson if he coached the modern-day Warriors? You think anyone would be able to touch that team? I'm not taking anything away from Steve Kerr. He's a future Hall of Famer. And give credit where credit's due. He has earned those 300 wins. You can't pin that on the backs of Curry and Durant. Not entirely, anyway. So why isn't Steve Kerr getting credit for being the fastest coach in any of the four major pro sports in North America to reach 300 career wins? But I'll let you draw your own conclusions because we have other stuff to talk about need to move on. What did the city of New Orleans ever do to Los Angeles? It all started in Championship Sunday. Everybody knows what happened. Mikel Roby Coleman gets away with pass interference. It would have set up the Saints to run the clock out and kick a game-winning field goal. That would have sent them to the Super Bowl instead. It goes uncalled, and the Rams win it in overtime. Example number one of how New Orleans' loss is Los Angeles's gain. Example number two occurred this morning when Anthony Davis requested a trade from the New Orleans Pelicans. And one of the potential landing spots looks to be more and more like it will be the Los Angeles Lakers, like Anthony Davis is going to go team up with LeBron. How valid are those rumors? Could there be any truth to that, that Anthony Davis could be on his way to the Staples Center? that he could be teaming up with LeBron and the Lakers. The Brow is going to become a free agent after next season anyway, and the Lakers need a number two on their team. It's weird to think about Anthony Davis as a number two to anybody, as a Robin to somebody's Batman. But that's what he would do if he goes to L.A., because no one is ever going to make LeBron their Robin and be the Batman. I said on the show a couple of months ago, could the Lakers' biggest strength, LeBron, be their biggest weakness? Because being in LeBron's shadow will deter an NBA All-Pro from coming to L.A. and joining him? Because right now, the Lakers are borderline a playoff team. Right now, they're not playing up to the standards that the Bus family has set and that the fan base expects. Specifically, they're not playing well enough to save Luke Walton's job in the near future. And that's too bad because he's a great coach that's put in a tough situation. Very rarely do you find an all-NBA talent who's okay with being second fiddle, who takes on that role, doesn't want the center spotlight. He wants to be that star number two. But you get guys like Kyle Lowry and Paul George who do that so well. And a lot of Lakers fans are still upset with Paul George. Never played a game for them, but he got booed when he came to the Staples Center for the first time this year because a lot of Lakers fans believe Paul George should have been a Los Angeles Laker this year. That the Lakers should have LeBron and PG-13 and be a top three team in the West right now. So if you're the Lakers front office, it leaves you scratching your head. Where do we go? Where do we upgrade from guys like Kuzma and Lonzo and Brandon Ingram? Where do we upgrade LeBron's supporting cast? Because nobody wants to come and be in his shadow if they don't have to. They all want to be faces of the franchise somewhere. Guys who are good enough that could bring the Lakers up another level. Well, now Anthony Davis says he wants to be on the trade market. And he might just be the pickup that the Lakers need. First of all, Anthony Davis wants to achieve success. He is the face of a New Orleans franchise that has never won a postseason series with him. Anthony Davis has never won an NBA playoff series. If he goes to LeBron, I can guarantee the Lakers are going to do some damage in the Western Conference playoffs. Anthony Davis, as good of a talent as he is, he's a top 10 player in the NBA. But do you think he would be okay with being a number two as long as that meant he gets something he's never had in New Orleans as a member of the Pelicans, and that is postseason success. What will he do to win? Especially knowing that he would only have to play one season, one and a half seasons if he leaves right now. He would only have to play a year and a half in LeBron's shadow, and then he's a free agent. He can go somewhere else. 
How much is Anthony Davis willing to give to win? It's a risk on his part because you think of the all-pro talent LeBron has had during his NBA career as teammates. And I'm not saying LeBron makes his teammates worse, but there's a pattern and a history there where guys just aren't the same when LeBron isn't there anymore. Kyrie Irving probably being the one exception. Looking at the Lakers right now, they're currently ninth place. They're outside of playoff position at 26 and 24, nine and a half games out of first. They are two games out of playoff position, two games behind the LA Clippers. And they're still waiting for LeBron to get back on the court after suffering that groin strain against the Warriors on Christmas Day. So the question becomes, do you want to keep treading water and hope to sneak into the postseason then have LeBron carry you? Or do you want to make a splash and go for Anthony Davis? Would that be the right move on the Lakers' part, though? I know it's Anthony Davis. Well, first of all, who would you rather have? They could have had Paul George. He chose not to go there. Now they have Anthony Davis. Both of them are top 10 NBA talents. Paul George may be a defensive player of the year favorite. But Anthony Davis's record stands alone. But is renting Anthony Davis for likely a year and a half at max worth the risk of your future investments? It's being reported that to initiate trade talks for the Brow, that the Lakers would have to give up Kyle Kuzma, Lonzo Ball, and a future first-round pick. Is that all worth it for a guy who might be gone after a year and a half? Trading away your future for a little bit of short-term success? The Lakers will win a playoff series. They might even become a power in the West. But what are they expecting? Do they think they can compete with the Warriors just by adding Anthony Davis? Do they believe that they can compete with the Rockets or the Blazers just by adding one piece, albeit a five-time All-Star? What are you willing to give up for a guy who may not factor into your long-term future? beyond the year 2020. Sure, you can lock him up by offering him an extension before he hits free agency, but do you really think Anthony Davis wants to spend his entire career in LeBron's shadow? Not as talented as he is. Not as talented as he is. Will Anthony Davis be on the move before the season ends? Boston is another team that has a real shot at landing Anthony Davis. However, there's no chance that Boston's going to get that done during this season. The earliest Boston could sign Anthony Davis is July the 1st because of the Rose Rule. Kyrie Irving is already on a Rose Rule contract. You can only have one per team. One Rose Rule player per team, and Kyrie Irving already fills that spot for Boston. If the Lakers somehow lure Anthony Davis away from the Pelicans... It will drive Bayou sports fans up the wall thinking about the Saints being denied a trip to the Super Bowl and Anthony Davis leaving the team in the hands of Drew Holiday. You really think he's going to stick around if Anthony Davis isn't? If you know a New Orleans sports fan, give him a hug today. They need it. We are up against a break. When we come back, I had a dream over the weekend. A team that no one would have thought makes the playoffs. I'm not saying I'm a predictor of the future, but it was so vivid, I need to talk about it. That's coming up next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. The Sports Pen lives here on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you as we hit the bottom of the hour on this Monday afternoon. It's time for your Sports Center update. Michigan and Michigan State hold at 5-6 and six in the latest men's college basketball rankings. Marquette is up to number 10. Meanwhile, Wisconsin re-enters the rankings at number 24. Pro golf, Justin Rose won the Farmers Insurance Open over the weekend. Meanwhile, Novak Djokovic toppled Rafael Nadal to claim the Australian Open tennis title. And finally, a Pepsi Super Bowl commercial was leaked to Twitter this morning. It featured actor Steve Carell and rappers Lil Jon and Cardi B addressing the famous line, Is Pepsi okay? If you haven't seen it, look it up. It's hilarious. Very well done. I teased before the break that over the weekend I had a vivid dream of a team that's been 
somewhat of a laughingstock. Not somewhat of a laughingstock. They have been a laughingstock throughout the last couple of decades. And last week, they somehow became more of a laughingstock when Seth Wickersham's expose broke on Thursday, detailing the Cleveland Browns and what the franchise has endured for the last couple of decades. I had a vivid dream over the weekend that the Cleveland Browns were in the playoffs. I could see it so clearly. I had no idea why I was dreaming about the Cleveland Browns, and I don't pretend to be somebody who can see the future. But my dream, the Cleveland Browns were playing in the postseason next year. The Browns have been on my mind lately. Obviously, after the Wickersham expose came out on Thursday, they've been on a lot of people's minds. They've been the topic on talk shows all around the country. But it made you realize just how embarrassing the Browns franchise has been over the past 20 years. Not just the performance on the field, but how they run that organization. How the Haslam family has worked with the Cleveland Browns. Why have the Cleveland Browns been so consistently bad since the franchise's rebirth in the 90s? Why are they consistently the laughing stock of the NFL? Of course, they've had bad personnel. They've had some bad coaches. But is it that black and white? How much does the ownership make or break the Cleveland Browns? How many times do owners fail to get credit for their franchise having success or not having success? You think about the New England Patriots and what they've been able to do, the dynasty that they have had for over 15 years. They're getting ready to play for a Super Bowl, and nobody's talking about the Crafts. Whenever you hear about the New England Patriots and all the success they've had, it's always Belichick, it's always Brady, it's never Robert Kraft and the work organization that he has sustained over there. With the Bears, it's all about Matt Nagy and the resurgence that he's brought. It's all about Khalil Mack. It's never about the Hallises. The Steelers, when they were on their runs, it would always be Mike Tomlin or Antonio Brown or Ben Roethlisberger, the reason that they're good or they're bad. But it was never about the Roonies. When the Giants won their titles, it was never about the Maras. It was Eli Manning, Michael Strahan. Ownership gets so overlooked when determining the success or the failure of a sports franchise. And that, my listeners, is totally exemplified by the Cleveland Browns. Randy Lerner was the owner of the team until 2012. Then he sold it to Jimmy Haslam. Haslam is the billionaire who made his fortune by founding the Flying J truck stops. And in that regard, he's done very well for himself. But as a football owner... He may go down as the worst owner in NFL history. Since taking over the team, the Browns have won 21 games, lost 75, and they had that tie with Pittsburgh in week one this season. All you need to do is read Seth Wickersham's piece on the Cleveland Browns power structure that came out last Thursday. If you have some time, it's a great read, really thought-provoking. It takes you inside the dog pound, and you see just how poorly... This franchise has been run from the top for all these years. It starts to make you think, who's the real reason for the Browns' struggles? They've had some bad coaches and bad quarterbacks. They've gone through coaches and quarterbacks like tissues over the past 20 years. But the ownership during that time? Just two, Randy Lerner and Jimmy Haslam. If you read Seth Wickersham's expose, it should make you mad. It should make you mad that there's a real team, a real professional football team. They're playing at the highest level of professional football in the world. And they're being run this poorly. You learn so much about the Browns. We knew they were bad on the field. It gets so much worse behind the scenes. Everything from accidentally showing a dirty movie during a team meeting to the firing of Hugh Jackson when John Dorsey and Jimmy Haslam went into the coach's office, relieved him of his duties, and Jackson said, get the out of here. And while Seth Wickersham lays out all this dysfunction we had no idea was going on, he doesn't elaborate as far as 
how those involved react to a situation. Like, what did Jimmy Haslam have to say after Hugh told him that? Like, these are the things we need to know. You can't just tease us with, this happened, and not tell us how they reacted. Did he remind Hugh, uh-uh, you get out of here. This is my office now. It's not yours anymore, you. Do me a favor and read Seth Wickersham's expose. And tell me if it does not make you mad. It doesn't make you hot under the collar that you're out doing whatever you're doing and some guy owns a football team and he runs it so poorly. And this isn't some slack-jaw arena football league in a town of about 30,000 people. This is an NFL team. He's playing at the highest level of competitive football in the world. And let me break it down why ownership matters so much in football and why it's so underrated. Is Belichick the greatest coach ever? Yes. Is Tom Brady the greatest of all time? Very likely. But would they be that way without Robert Kraft as an owner? He cuts deals. They always have cap space. He gets guys to want to come to Boston, to Foxborough, because he gets them to believe in the Patriot culture. That doesn't come from Belichick. That comes from the top. That comes from the top with Robert Kraft. There is always going to be cap space. They'll always be able to sign role-player guys. As long as they keep Belichick and Brady together, they've done it for how long now? Robert Kraft brings in the right pieces. He sets the culture. He's the one who sets the Patriot culture. It comes down from the top. Jimmy Haslam has nowhere near the ownership expertise that Robert Kraft has. Jimmy Haslam is like a guy who goes out and buys a 1964 Camaro. Great looking car in great shape too. That doesn't make him a car guy. You don't just buy something with no knowledge of it just because you think it looks cool and think that that makes you a car guy. Same thing with a football team. Jimmy Haslam's rich. He was a good businessman with a flying J truck stop. It's made him into a billionaire. He has more money than he'll ever know what to do with. He decides he wants to buy a football team just for fun. He doesn't need it. He's not going to depend on if he owns the Cleveland Browns or not. He'll be rich either way. He just wants to have a football team. That doesn't make you a football guy. Same way as buying a 1964 Camaro doesn't make you a car guy. But Jimmy Haslam doesn't get that because he doesn't let his front office do their jobs. Jimmy Haslam thinks that since he bought a football team, he is a football genius. He goes out of his way to make sure his way is done because he believes that he's got the magic touch, that he is just as smart of a guy as Robert Kraft. He wants to prove to people that he knows what he's doing, even if that means going completely the opposite way from what his advisors tell him to do. Which is exactly what happened when he hired Hugh Jackson as head coach. The front office told him not to do it. The board of directors told him not to do it. He did it anyway. He was the only one who wanted to hire Hugh Jackson as the coach. And look how that turned out. I'm not making excuses for the Browns. Because they have had some terrible coaches and terrible quarterbacks. But believe me when I say this, it has more to do with Jimmy Haslam. Not who's playing quarterback, not who's coaching the team. It all starts with the power structure. They look like they found their guy in Baker Mayfield. They look like they have a guy who's going to help them trend upwards. And they made the right decision by getting Freddie Kitchens and sticking with him as their head coach. But look at the list of starting quarterbacks Cleveland has had since their rebirth in 99. Tim Couch, Ty Detmer, Doug Peterson, Spurgeon Wynn, Kelly Holcomb, Jeff Garcia, Luke McCown, Charlie Fry, Trent Dilfer, Derek Anderson, Ken Dorsey, Brady Quinn, Colt McCoy, Jake DeLome, Derek Anderson, Seneca Wallace, Thad Lewis, Bruce Gradkowski, Brian Hoyer, Connor Shaw, Johnny Manziel, Jason Campbell, Brandon Whedon, Josh McCown, Austin Davis, Cody Kessler, RG3, Deshaun Kaiser, Terod Taylor, Kevin Hogan, and now Baker Mayfield. There's a lot of bad quarterbacks in that list, but you can't tell me every single one of those guys was bad. They just came to a team with a bad structure, with bad ownership. And Baker, I think he's the franchise guy. They found the right guy. 
But were there a few guys before him that could have been the right guy that were wasted? Whether that's by bad coaches or bad ownership? Gotta believe that there was somebody. So how far can the Browns go now that they do have their guy? They start to look better toward the end of the season. They've got their guy at quarterback. They've got their guy at coach. How far can the Browns go knowing Jimmy Haslam is still the owner of the team? In the dream I had over the weekend, they were in the playoffs. It was wild card weekend. They almost got there this year, despite having a terrible start and a coaching change. Could they do it? Could they realistically get to the playoffs? They could, in spite of Jimmy Haslam. I don't believe that they're ever going to make a run because of Jimmy Haslam. All you gotta do, read Seth Wickersham's piece. He lays it out for you how bad the Browns' structure is. I'll say this, when Jimmy Haslam decides to finally sell the Cleveland Browns, that city deserves to celebrate as hard as the day LeBron won them a title back in 2016. We're up against our last timeout. When we come back, the stars were shining over the weekend, both in San Jose and in Orlando, the NFL Pro Bowl and the NHL All-Star Game. We break them down next in the sports pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me as we wind you down to the 5 o'clock hour on this frigid Monday afternoon. Stars were shining this weekend, both in San Jose and in Orlando. The NHL All-Star Game and the NFL Pro Bowl both occurring over the weekend. It got started with the NHL skills competition Friday night, then the game was on Saturday. I love how they do the NHL All-Star game. They play a four-team, three-on-three tournament. You have the four divisions, the Metropolitan, the Central, the Atlantic, and the Pacific. You take the All-Stars from each of those divisions, and you play a three-on-three tournament, two semifinals, and a championship. Winning team gets $1 million. The MVP gets a Honda. So the NHL All-Star Game occurs on Saturday night in San Jose. The first semifinal had the two Western Conference divisions go up against each other. They had the Pacific take on the Central Division. And it was a butt-kicking. I said on the show last week, on Friday we had a mini-debate. Should every team have at least one representative at an All-Star Game, whatever league it's in? Or should it truly be an All-Star Game, regardless of team representation, regardless of everybody sending at least one representative, should it be a true all-star game with the best of the best? John Gibson, goaltender for the Anaheim Ducks, did his darndest to make the case that it should be the best of the best, that not every team needs to be represented. John Gibson was the goaltender for the Pacific Division in the first half of the all-star game. By the way, they play two 10-minute halves rather than three 20-minute periods. So generally, each division carries two goalies. One goalie plays the first half, one plays the second. John Gibson was scored on seven times in the first half. He only made two saves. So John Gibson allowed seven goals on nine shots as the Central dominated the Pacific 10-4 to to start off the evening. Gibson was the only representative of the Anaheim Ducks, a team that has been flailing out of contention. The Ducks currently sit at 21-21-9. They recently snapped a 12-game losing streak. They have two wins in their last 10 games. Big reason why they only sent one to the All-Star game, and he got lit up while he was there. He was embarrassed. The other semifinal had the Metropolitan take on the Atlantic Division. That was a back-and-forth game early on, and then the Metro scored a flurry of goals late. They ended the game with four unanswered to win 7-4. So then it was the Metro and the Central in the championship game. And the Metro raced to a 5-0 halftime lead. They end up winning 10-5. Sidney Crosby gets the MVP. He was also named the NHL's first star of the week this week. Crosby finished All-Star Weekend with four goals and four assists. He racked up exactly 15 minutes of total ice time. So Sid has a new Honda and the Penguins are surging. Life has got to be pretty good for Mr. Crosby especially when you consider the fact that he was sick for the days leading up to the All-Star game, hadn't played in a week, 
he missed the skills competition on Friday night because he wasn't healthy enough to go, and he comes back Saturday night and puts on the performance that he did, he's still got it. Still the best player in the world. Jimmy Howard, by the way, was the lone Red Wing representative at the All-Star game. He finished with nine saves against 13 shots. Only had one game to play as the Atlantic was bounced in the semifinals. I love NHL All-Star Weekend. I love their format. I know a lot of people don't, but I do. I like it when it's a true All-Star game. I don't like the trend where players start to sit out and use it as an extra few days of rest. Alex Ovechkin did that earlier this year. Got suspended for one game for doing it. Gary Price sat out as well, but I'm okay with that because I don't believe Gary Price was good enough to be in the All-Star game this year anyway. But you have some of the best players in the game, almost all of them this year, on one sheet of ice competing in a tournament. Cash prize on the line. There's a car. There's all that incentive. And you've got guys taking it seriously. It's great hockey. It's a lot of fun. Those guys don't take that seriously. You know, it's somewhat entertaining to watch at points. But other leagues can absolutely learn something from the NHL. You've got incentive on the line. You have that in the MLB All-Star game. You're playing for home field advantage. Those guys are out there trying as hard as they can. Hockey, they're doing that. I'm not saying that any other league should adapt the NHL's format of having a mini tournament. I didn't know how they would do that. Basketball, you could do a three-on-three, but those guys try hard anyway. What I'm saying is that other leagues can learn something from the NHL. The NHL actually cares about its viewers and giving them something entertaining. The Pro Bowl is going to do whatever is best for the NFL. That's why it's not played after the Super Bowl. It's not in Hawaii anymore. They do whatever's best for the NFL to increase revenue and ratings. Hockey, it's about putting on a good product for the fans, something enjoyable for the fans. And maybe part of it is because they have to. Let's face it, Americans don't watch hockey like they do football. So maybe they have to be a little more inclined to their viewer and what they want. And they're willing to do something entertaining for it. The NFL... What's entertaining about the Pro Bowl? Maybe the most entertaining part was Odell Beckham Jr. dancing with the Colts mascot pregame. For me, I loved it when Andrew Luck was mic'd up. You could hear Andrew Luck inside the huddle. That was my favorite part until the Mike Evans interception and the lateral play. About six different laterals goes for 30 yards. Joe Testor was on the call. who gets up in laterals to bar, and now it has become schoolyard football, Saquon Barkley with the ball. On defense, mind you, as he spins free from Miller, tries to cross field, gets away from Pouncey, and what do we have here? Razzle-dazzle, it continues on. Welcome to the Pro Bowl 2019. How about that call, Tess? <laughs> Razzle-dazzle? <laughs> That was easily my favorite part of the Pro Bowl yesterday. And yes, I did watch the Pro Bowl. I wasn't going to go outside and get my legs frozen off. I was just happy that football was on. I couldn't contain my appetite waiting for the Super Bowl. So I watched me a little Pro Bowl minus those playing in the Super Bowl. No Patriots, no Rams, no Tom Brady, no Todd Gurley. So I watched a little bit of a watered-down version of the best the NFL has to offer on one stage in Orlando yesterday, a very rainy day in Orlando. 26-7, the AFC delivers a butt-kicking. Jason Garrett and the Cowboy coaching staff was on the sideline for the NFC. You give him some of the best players in the National Football Conference, and he still gets blown out by 19 points. Will Kane is coming on here in a few minutes after us. I'm sure he has some thoughts on how the Pro Bowl went and how Jason Garrett coached in that game. I do give him credit, though. Jason Garrett sent offensive players out on defense to make the game a little more interesting. And some of them actually played pretty well. But you had Alvin Kamara and Saquon Barkley at one point both playing on the defensive line. They were lined up on the line of scrimmage. These guys are all pro running backs. You just heard wide receiver Mike Evans playing corner. He had an interception. 
On one hand, I love it that Jason Garrett did that because it makes it more interesting for the fans. It's a game no one really cares about. Spice it up a little bit. On the other hand, I hate it because the Pro Bowl is becoming more of a joke by doing this. Saquon Barkley will likely win Offensive Rookie of the Year on Saturday night, and he was playing at all three levels of the defense, in the defensive secondary, the linebacker positions, even up on the defensive line. You think maybe some calls were made to Jerry Jones regarding how Jason Garrett used Alvin Kamara and Saquon Barkley and some of these all-pro running backs. You think that Pat Shermer had a problem with his all-pro running back of the future playing on the defensive line in a meaningless game while being coached by a divisional rival? You think Pat Shermer had a little bit of a problem with that? It was fun, no doubt. In that regard, that was pretty fun to see some of those offensive guys playing defense and then playing well. But at the same point, it makes a mockery of the game of football, professional football especially. The Pro Bowl is nothing more than a revenue-generating sideshow attraction. Yeah, it has its moments. It delivers something entertaining. But at what cost? We can all take a few minutes and be thankful that at least it's no longer Team Rice and Team Sanders playing in ugly neon jerseys. We are thankful that we are beyond that point. I'm not saying that other leagues need to adopt the NHL's format, but they can learn something from the NHL in the sense that the NHL cares about its viewers. They do something that is going to be entertaining, that will be competitive, and that will maintain the integrity of the sport. The NFL has not been doing that with the Pro Bowl the last few years, and especially not so yesterday. All the leagues could take a lesson from Major League Baseball and how to run an all-star game. By the way, the NHL returns to action this evening. They're back after breaking for the All-Star weekend. couple of games on tap for tonight. And the Pittsburgh Penguins have made the first trade since the All-Star break. They are sending defenseman Jamie Alexiak to the Dallas Stars. And on that note, let's call today. Thanks again for tuning in to the Sports Pen. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. A reminder that if you've missed any of the show, you can hear it with our free mobile app on demand. You can get that from the Apple iStore or Google Play, or you can go to our website, ESPNUP.com. Until tomorrow, thank you for listening on ESPNUP WZAM, Ishpeming Marquette.